0: So just before the show starts, we always want to try to add value to our listeners. So today we have a free offer for you. If you'd like to go to a URL, which I will share with you at the end of the show, uh, you will be able to download my free book called Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience. So stay tuned after the show for the URL.
1: Welcome to the intuitive customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So,
2: Colin, I go to a lot of conferences as part of my job. Um, Most of them are academic conferences. Uh, You can stop. I can already feel your jealousy just coming through the microphone there.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, uh, For those of us in the academy, like, these are wonderful, these conferences, it's just real nerd space where you get to hang out with people who are your own people. <laughs> but I went to a conference that was different recently. This was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was by an organization that tries to bring academics and practitioners together. Um, and so in addition to the, the regular academic presentations on research that I'm used to hearing uh, and giving, we also had a couple of uh, practitioners in the room who uh, presented on the problems that they were facing as an organization and what they were interested in and, and I'll say that these were very research-oriented practitioners. So uh-huh. there were a couple of PhDs uh, on, on their presentation uh, in those research organizations. But it was shocking to me, again, as I'm shocked by this, it's like we're speaking completely different languages. Yeah. You know, people who do academic research... We've got a very set a specific set of directives, a bunch of stuff that we care very much about, people in practice. We want we want to get along. We really do. We all want so much. And yet we we just care about different stuff. So uh, I wanted to have a discussion today around the frustration that I'm sure, you sometimes feel and a lot of people in practice who, who are interested in and care about academic research feel this frustration where you want to use this stuff. And yet so much of academic research is just completely unusable.
0: Yeah, no. And, and, and I think I've always thought that there is a massive wealth of data yeah. in academia that yep. doesn't get used. And and uh, I've often thought, I, I, and we've discussed, you know, I can't understand why it it, isn't, it's, it feels like it's, to be honest with you, it's a bit like being a lawyer, that yeah. the, the language is just impenetrable. Um, and, and, and I don't know if anybody's ever read some of the psychological research and stuff like that, but I mean, it's just, I mean, you, you, you come away from that. You think, bloody hell, that person's clever because I didn't understand a word he said.
2: (laughs) No, I, I often joke that, um, the academic research is, is not meant to be consumed by human beings. It is not written for a human audience. It's written for other academics. Um, and we speak a different language. I mean, that's.
0: how does it even get kicked off? So if you're, because it would seem sensible to me that, and again, I think the reason we've got on in these subjects is that we tend to base these round sort of business issues. Mm-hmm. Does it? Does anybody go in academia? Here's a business issue. Let's go and do some research on it and try to help business, or you know, or is it just mm, I fancy doing a bit of research on this?
2: Yeah, um, it, it does happen sometimes that way. I mean, I'm working on a research project now, for instance, that was kicked off by uh, a PhD student who noticed an advertisement that was a little different than what you would typically see. And so she said, hey, you know, isn't this interesting? Maybe we should uh, look into that. And some other research projects are started by, um, uh, I mean, I, for example, another example of, of research that I'm currently doing um I've got a research project on whether everyday low pricing strategies or high low pricing strategies result in an overall lower impression of of prices at a retailer. right And that's a pretty um, useful yeah. problem that yeah. retailers face. and uh, I was motivated to do research in part to solve this this question that they might have. But a lot of research is not motivated by that. Right. Um, a lot of research is motivated by what did other people in these academic journals find, and do we agree with that, or do we want to find exceptions to their rules? Uh, so the biggest thing you need to understand about academic research um, before you get started is that the academics, we, respond to incentives that are not the incentives that practitioners expect they are. Sure. So we are largely talking to other academics in these journals, and that's why yeah. we use the complicated language that we do, and that's why we ask the kind of very specific questions that we do in our research. By and large, not incentivized to help businesses. Um, uh. Shocking as that may be, psychologists and even people working in economists, even people working in business schools, we're not incentivized to solve business problems we're incentivized to publish in academic journals whose readership is largely other
0: academics so do you get requests from business to undertake specific research or anything like that sometimes
2: there are some of us on the academic side who do that that arrangement's typically more common uh for people who uh play around with big data sets So if you have skills as a a data modeler, um, it's much more common to partner with uh, businesses, get their data, run it through your models, analyze it, and then you can share the insights with them and then also hopefully publish some. There are people like me on more of the psychologist behavioral economics side who do that a little bit. um, But it's less common because I don't need the data from a firm. To run the tests that I do, to do the research that I do,
0: uh, and is this is this the truck coming to pick you up? For yeah, the madness so that happens in. in I'm academia? revealing
2: the secrets of the academy, and <laughs> the academic secret police does not like that. No, we're recording from my office in uh, on Emory's campus, and uh, Emory has a huge hospital that is not far away from my office. So, you'll be inter- hearing me interrupted by sirens from time to time. Um, that's just part of what we do. So Absolutely. so that's the first thing you need to understand is we don't work for people in business. And, yeah. and that's sometimes news to people in business. We've got a different set of incentives. So that's one thing. Yeah.
1: Why not let Colin and Ryan speak at your next conference? As you can hear, they're great communicators and can get over a message in a simple, inspiring, and humorous way. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact.
2: The other thing to understand is um, this notion in research about the different ways that research can be valid. So there's a a distinction made between internal validity and external validity of research. Internal validity is how well the research holds together in terms of of whether it establishes causality or not so is it valid within its own context external validity is how generalizable generalizable is this research so how many settings can i apply it to now ideally we would want research to be both both internally valid and externally valid so it's internally valid in that it's uh uh, well supported uh, and it can establish causality and also externally valid in that it applies to lots and lots of situations but often there's a trade-off. Often, as researchers, the decisions that we make that make things more externally valid kind of allow more slippage to creep in, and so it threatens internal validity. Uh, The things that we do to make things more internally valid requires more control, and so limits the external validity. If uh, we're to guess what academic researchers care more about when we have to make this trade-off, it's the internal internal validity.
0: Yeah, right, okay.
2: If you are a practitioner, you care a lot more about external validity. So in other words, I kind of sort of care about why it works, but what I really want to know is will it work here now, right, in my setting? And, again, academic researchers are just not incentivized by that.
0: Yeah, I think the the interesting part for me is that the – I guess it it becomes a bit of a given that in academia I don't ever I don't ever question the validity of the data maybe I yeah, should yeah. but I don't um because you just go this has been written by very clever people I'm sure they've got a really robust process for getting this paper published blah 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 so I trust it uh and you know the the overall issue has always been for me which is well, what what does it actually mean for improving customer experience, and how does that? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we? What does it mean that we need to? What does it mean that we need to to, to do? Right. And no, guess, you're, you're exactly there, right. A, I think that's where the the gap the gap lies. I mean, and and I have to say, it's more than a gap. It feels like it's a bloody chasm, to be totally yeah. honest with um, because there doesn't seem to be enough people wanting to find out what academia is doing and and identifying and i also have to say there doesn't seem to be um from academic perspective it's not exactly i mean even just the way it's marketed and we've we've laughed about this in the past but some of the the terms of you know the the you know even just talking about heuristics and stuff like that you go well yeah but if you were trying to sell it you wouldn't call it that would you yeah. because it's just impenetrable in the in the language that's used so it feels like there's just a big divide between academia and business I, I 100% agree and and the
2: reasons are people who would do that kind of translation work that kind of bridge building currently in the academic system there's no reward for those people so we right. we don't grant tenure to people who Apply research to specific settings. Usually, um, we don't, you know, uh, promote work that's done translationally. We want new theory. We don't want theory that's kind of old theory that's applied somewhere else. Um, and and we can bemoan that. We can say it should be different. Um, but the the fact is that that's kind of the way it is now. Um, and if it's going to change, it'll probably take a while to change.
0: Sure. So let me just take a bit of a sidetrack here because yeah. obviously you spend a lot of time, and Emory are known for providing really good MBAs and all that type of stuff. So, so what's the connection then between that sort of research and MBAs, or is there a is there that connection, or are they completely separate? Does that make no, sense? There can be some. So, I mean, a, a lot of what we do in this podcast
2: is is that translation work so uh, particularly those of us who work in business fields in academia do care about application even if the research itself is not designed for that um you know we we do care about we believe in what we're doing and we care about making it usable to other people and so we will try to do it but it's i mean it's like you know it's like this podcast or like the book that we wrote it's I didn't get any kind of academic credit for doing that. Sure. Um, I'm doing it because I think it's important and because I enjoy it. And, uh, and so when I teach my MBAs, I will pull in research insights to the extent that I can and explain, you know, what we know from the science of this stuff. There's also, though, a lot of MBA teaching that is not science based. So a lot of frameworks, for example, that we use are not Scientific theory. So Porter's five forces is not an right. empirically validated yeah. uh, Scientific theory. The four P's will never generate falsifiable hypotheses They're still useful. They're useful as tools as ways of improving the way we think about things But the overlap between The science of business and the teaching of business is not complete it's kind of a partial overlap
0: so from your perspective, why do you think that business is don't don't delve into academia more. So we when when we when we first started working together five years ago or something, mm. um, you know, one of the things that we were we were talking about was just this whole area of behavioral economics. It's a new science, and you know, uh, and obviously, hopefully, the people that are listening to the podcast, you know, are interested in the subject as well. I I, I guess the issue for me is is just why more businesses are not going so from your perspective why are m- more businesses not going there's a wealth of information here that we need to tap into uh, so most of it is that reason
2: that you already mentioned which is that it's it's really difficult to get in there yourself and read the raw material so you can Access some of these uh, information uh, online. A lot of researchers will post their, their papers on their own personal website. Sometimes you go to libraries and and get access to these journals. So it's out there, but sifting through it and trying to read it. I mean, in, in the early days of my PhD training, I had to read, you know, sometimes dozens of articles a, a week and because I was untrained in how to read academic articles, it could take me an hour or an hour and a half to read a, a six or seven page research article because they're just so dense and so complex and the ideas are so complex. If you are expecting businesses business leaders to go in there and just kind of read this stuff raw, sure. uh, it's very, very difficult. So they would need to develop the skills to do that. And honestly, who has the time? Um, so that's kind of hard. So instead, we, uh, those of us who are interested in this and who haven't had training in it, uh, often have to rely on kind of the popular press summaries of this. So there are readers or writers like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell or, or Dan Ariely yeah. or um, uh, Daniel Kahneman who, who will take this research. I, I think that our book, The Intuitive Customer, does this. We take this research and then we try to turn it into something that's a little bit more palatable, a little bit more usable, um sure. more general
0: but i think the key issue for me becomes that you know it's under i well, not just me but it's obviously very easy to make things difficult but yeah. it's very complicated to make things simple and and I, and i think if if i was if i was giving advice to people on this podcast about this subject etc uh, you know I'm, i i is what you've actually got to do is listen to the stuff that we talk about and if you notice we always try and translate that back into everyday customer experiences and it's interesting mm-hmm. you said that your um your uh, the one of the guys that's doing phd um saw an advert that was a little bit different so yeah. in other words it's baked in reality uh, and, and therefore i think for me when you communicate things you The the power of going, you know, let me tell you about what happened to me last week when I was on Amazon and this happened and that happened. Well, that, you know, let me tell you that that's about theory X. You know, um, it it just puts it into much easier to understand language. Yeah, I agree. You should. Sorry, I was just thinking. What I tell you what what um, academics should be mandated with doing is just providing three examples of how <laughs> their their thing their whatever theory it is they're doing, you know, it actually manifests itself in the real world.
2: I'll I'll get right on that. I'll manifest that, or I'll I'll require that for uh, for everybody from now on.
0: Yeah. yeah interesting even to and and I, and I guess the other thing is I and I maybe again I'm being naive question but is there any form of anywhere any database where all this stuff resides if somebody's sitting listening to this podcast and going well where do I do I you know I want to find out about x is it just a question of in it or what so there's uh google scholar so
2: google has a yeah. search engine specifically designated towards academic research. Um, So I think it's just scholar.google.com. The issue there is that when you search through it, uh, first of all, not all of these papers will be accessible. Uh, Some of them are hidden behind paywalls, and the paywalls can be ridiculously expensive. Um, But even when you can get them, sometimes the papers themselves are are difficult to to muddle through. So um, I can give some advice on how to handle this. Uh, But in terms of of hope for the future, you know, I think that behavioral economics is a really interesting field, in part because those of us who have been doing this research for a little while, the main things in behavioral economics that people are getting excited about and the fact that it's considered kind of this new and interesting field, most of the stuff is not new. Um, Most of the stuff in behavioral economics actually dates back to the the 70s or, or earlier, uh, yeah. some of it back to the 50s. Behavioral economics, though, was this brilliant bit of marketing where they took all of this stuff from psychology and then rebranded it, called it behavioral economics, and then tied it to some specific, easy-to-understand examples, and now all of a sudden people could kind of get it and um, and start applying it and, and got really excited about these rather old ideas but that were reinvented and made more accessible. So I think that there is hope. I think there are people who are starting to care more about this. Um, but the reality is that there's still a lot of work to be done.
0: Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. There's a hell of a lot of work to be done. But um, the good news is that um, people listening to the podcast can go and tell their friends and say, this is a place, go and listen to the intuitive customer. Because yeah, that's I mean, where they, they pull this stuff apart.
2: Patting ourselves on the back, this is kind of what, what we're trying to do anyway, um, is do some of that translation work. Uh, one bit of advice that I'd give you if you are interested in this, um, uh, there's this temptation to look for the, the latest and greatest, the coolest, most bleeding edge, cutting edge stuff, uh, and that's where we're gonna find the insights. For behavioral research, I would recommend not doing that. So I sometimes I'll okay. use the, the metaphor of the tree when I'm talking about scientific discovery. Okay. So there are certain parts of science that are uh, discovered and then enforced and reinforced and retested over and over again. You can think of these as, as the trunk of the tree or the thick branches coming off the tree. We kind of need to retest this in order to, to test new things. And so there's just lots and lots of evidence that, that this stuff holds up. Then there's the stuff on the very edges, the kind of the the new branches, the new buds that are coming out. That's the cutting edge stuff. That stuff may or may not work out, right? So even if the findings are valid um, and they're exciting, people may not be able to replicate them. It might require some very, very specific settings in order for them to happen. If you're looking to make decisions about your business don't look to the stuff that's being written up and, and reported in the New York Times or The Economist or, or um, anywhere else. Because right, it's on, too new. It's too new. You sure. need to look back to the stuff that's been shown over and over and over sure. again. That's going to be the most reliable stuff. Sorry. So it's not necessarily the sexiest, newest stuff. Some of this stuff from the 50s and 60s and 70s is going to be your best bet.
0: So things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that that is pretty well established and all that type of stuff.
2: Uh, I wish you hadn't brought up Maslow. So <laughs> <laughs> It was going so well until that point. It was going so well. <laughs> we cut this in post. So listen, um, so Maslow is one of those things that I would consider a framework. Okay. Um, as a framework, it's really useful. So,
0: so what, what's is, the difference between a framework and is it just the statistics that go behind it? Then?
2: So a, a framework doesn't make testable hypotheses.
0: Okay. A
2: theory does. Okay. And and Maslow's hierarchy makes some makes some predictions about you know which uh, needs are more important than others and right. as people have studied it over the years it turns out that those specific hypotheses don't actually pan out all that often so it's not the case that people need to fulfill all the lower order needs before they'll start to try to fulfill the higher order needs. So psychologists are not big fans of Maslow from that perspective. I still teach it in consumer psychology classes because it's a useful way to think about the different needs that people have. Sure. Um,
0: It's not great on the theory side. Sure. But I think that's an interesting thing in itself, in the sense that it becomes accepted. Yeah. It's sort of like something doesn't have to be
2: scientifically valid in order for it to be useful. Sure. And four p's or the the five forces those are not good science but they are terribly useful ways of approaching a problem
0: yeah Yeah. the difference between the science and the way that things are communicated i guess
2: yeah yeah i mean a, a lot of a lot of good business decision making is thinking clearly and frameworks help us do that you know things like like the hierarchy of needs can help you think about a problem better and therefore make better decisions
0: Good. Okay. Well, I suggest that um, uh, thinking clearly and being able to clearly articulate things, etc., cetera, is a, is a good place to, to, to leave this. So um, uh, thanks very much for, for listening uh, to us today. Um, if you want to hear anything more than on uh, how to improve your customer experience, then please just go to beyondphilosophy.com. And we hopefully will be listening. You'll be listening next week and tell a friend even. Very good. Hi, this is Colleen. I promise to be back with you at the end of the show. To download our free book, Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience, just go to beyondphilosophy.com cxbook. That's beyondphilosophy.com cxbook.
1: This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here.